Welcome to Sparking Action. This is a podcast that showcases ordinary people creating extraordinary lives through the power of inspired action. My name is Vera Ilnitsky, a marketer, life coach, and passionate advocate for healthy and active living. In Sparking Action, I have informative and inspiring conversations with people who have taken and are taking bold action to change their life, reach amazing goals, make a positive impact on the world, and create success on their own terms. My intent is to create a supportive space that inspires, informs, and motivates, because I truly believe that learning from others can spark our own inspired action to create positive change, reach our goals, and gain momentum for better living. At age 32, Michael McKay was outwardly successful. He had a profitable business, he owned a condo in a trendy part of town, and was engaged to be married. But deep down, he was unhappy. So in 2015, he blew up his life and moved to Cambodia, where an opportunity to work had come up. He's been in Cambodia the last six years, and in today's conversation, we hear what he's learned on his journey, his thoughts and advice on goal setting, happiness, privilege, and not waiting to do the things you really want in life. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Welcome to Sparking Action. I'm really excited to have you as a guest on my podcast. I'm really excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Of course. So why don't we get right into it? I'd love to um, hear a bit about your story and uh, how you came to be where you are today. Oh, well. <laughs> <laughs> so I do live in Cambodia. I've lived in Cambodia now for the last six years. But uh, I, before this, uh, six years ago, I've been in Calgary for most of my life, like 25, 30 years of my life. And um, I'd never really traveled anywhere and never lived abroad. Um, and I, I think I will say 2015, I had everything. <laughs> How's that? I, I had everything. I was 32 years old. I had a small advertising agency that I was running, uh, financially actually very successful. I was engaged um, to the girl that got away in college. Um, and uh, I was also teaching one day a week at the local college. I was teaching advertising. And uh, I had it all. I owned a condo in a trendy part of town. Like, by all accounts, totally successful, have everything. But I wasn't happy. Um, I wasn't happy. And, um, you know, it took um, a pretty big um, moment. Um, so I was engaged and I was, uh, tell me if this is too deep, too fast. But uh, this is great. Um, so I was engaged and I was, was set to be married. And um, uh, for some reason, I just wasn't happy. I was dreaming about tornadoes a lot. Um, wow. And, uh, and you know, I, I took some time to do some self-reflection. And, um, you know, there's a few things that were wrong in my life and everything that seemed perfect is like, on one hand, uh, as financially successful as the business was, it was also very stressful. Uh, being an entrepreneur is hard. Um, doing it alone or mostly alone is hard. Um, I didn't have all the right skills to really grow it properly. And the whole reason I had started a business in the first place was to create a place that people loved to work and were excited to go to every day. And I hadn't even created something that I was excited to go to every day. I was, you know, so uh, I was failing at my first objective in my business. <laughs> and then, um, and then even in my relationship, um, you know, we were, we were a great pair, um, but, you know, as we got closer and closer to the wedding, um, I think that's such a big life decision. And I think, you know, 
most people just, you know, that's what you're supposed to do when you've been in a relationship for a really long time. And as it got closer and closer, it just felt more and more wrong. And, um, and I really didn't know why. And, you know, when we started to pick it apart is we wanted different things in our life and there was parts of our relationship that were great. And then parts that weren't. And, you know, there was parts that made us good friends and companions, but maybe not the best partners. And, um, uh, and actually it was a very devastating time to be honest, because I was faced with this perfect life in some ways that I basically had to on purpose break if I wanted to feel better about where I was and who I was in my life. And about this time, um, a friend of mine who had lived in Cambodia worked the company I eventually worked for. She had come back to Canada um, and she said, you know, my position is still available in Cambodia. They're still looking to fill mine. And we had similar backgrounds and, uh, you know, uh, I was very, <laughs> I was in the middle of all this sort of turmoil in my life. And I'm like, Cambodia. I mean, I'd heard about her experience. I thought it was, you know, it sounded great for her, but I was like, I mean, I'd never traveled. I'd never lived abroad. And I, I don't know if I was ready for that kind of thing, but, um, you know, I thought, well, I mean, things are worth a conversation. So I, I had a chat with the, the company and then, you know, uh, with everything that was happening in my life, it's like, I needed something. I needed, I, something needed to change. And, um, so yeah, in 2015, I blew up my life. <laughs> I, <laughs> I, I ended my relationship, um, which was devastating and hard. I, I really loved that person and I still do. And, um, but I also knew that I, I needed to move on from it. And, um, and yeah, with the business, I, I also, I just wound it sort of down and I, I didn't know if I was going to close it completely, but I, I knew I just needed a reset in my life. And Cambodia sort of presented itself at a time when, you know, it wasn't a perfect position. It was a bit of a step back from being a business owner to being, uh, it was an art director position. So, but I also needed something that I, I that wouldn't take a lot of stress and because I just needed time. I needed time to figure out what do I want to do? What's next? Um, and also to grieve. Uh, this is a, this was kind of like grieve the life that you thought you wanted, <laughs> you know, like mm. when you have the house and the spouse and the job and, you know, everything looks perfect. And what do you do when you're still not happy? And it's like, well, this is what everybody says you're supposed to want and here you have it. And what's the problem? So, yeah. So that's how I ended up in Cambodia. I did not know that I would be here this long. Um, my first feeling about it was, uh, well, if it doesn't work out, I can always come home. Right. And I had actually no intention. I think my first contract was just a year. And I was like, well, probably just bugger off in a year. Didn't think I would be here 16 <laughs> years later. So, yeah. Wow. Thank you for sharing. Lots of questions come up from that. Did you ever think that you were running away from the kind of the issues and some of the challenges in your life? Or did you feel that you were running towards something new? I actually felt that I was running into the challenges mm. um, by ending because it took a long time. It took about a year leading up to the event in sort of 2015, where I ended everything. It took, it took about a year to get to that point because I was so afraid. Like I just, I was afraid to end a relationship that by all accounts looked perfect to do anything that shifted. Um, so yeah, it was definitely, it was a leaning into because the whole first year I was in Cambodia was just grief. It was just a grieving year of, of, of trying to figure out why I was so miserable. So. What did that process look like? Like, I, I like how you phrased it, that you needed to grieve the life you, you thought you wanted. And I just, 
I can't help but wonder, but if a lot of people have that feeling in themselves that they are living the life they thought they wanted, but you broke free of that. And then how did you grieve that and let that go and, and move on to a different version of yourself? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I do think moving cities and not just moving cities, but moving completely to the other side of the world probably helped because Mm -hmm. it was very isolating. Like when I first got here, I don't, you know, I didn't like Cambodia. (laughs) I'll be the first to admit it. I arrived and it's Phnom Penh is, you know, it's an underdeveloped at the time. I mean, it's much more developed now, but the time, you know, very underdeveloped, dirty, smelly, nothing's in English. Everything is hard. And uh, just simple things like going to an ATM was almost impossible. So I think the full isolation and, and like removal of anything comfortable, it's just sort of forced me into like, whether I wanted to or not, like I just had to deal with things. Um, so from just from that sort of change of environment, uh, it wasn't, I couldn't rely on other comforts to make me comfortable. I couldn't default to different habits, whether it was going for a walk in the park or whether it was going to a coffee shop or defaulting to going out with friends. Like I didn't have any of those sort of um, excuses, I guess. Like the only thing that I had that was familiar was me and I was a wreck. (laughs) So, um, so, I mean, I've been, I've been a journaler for a long time and I I've been practicing like morning pages for, um, well, about six or seven years now. So that process of just daily writing uh, was definitely a key um, outlet for me. Um, I mean, it helped that I, the workplace that I ended up was a very supportive workplace, um, good people, great people. Um, so even though I wasn't really close friends and sort of opening up about everything in my life is that, you know, I, I had a workplace that was supportive, that I was around people that, you know, didn't work stressful. And so, but I do think the whole everything being uncomfortable made it sort of like it gave me tunnel vision. It's like, you have no choice but to focus on this because you have to survive in this place and you need you to do it. So get your shit together. (laughs) Did you ever think about turning around and just coming back home? Oh, oh, that's a good question. Uh, Oh, that's a great question. No, even though I hated it, I actually reread a, a, a message, uh, a, a journal entry I wrote, maybe it was if, after I'd been here for even a year. And I was like, I hate this place. Why am I here? <laughs> but at the same, like, and I did, I, I hated it. I, I didn't know why I was here, but I didn't at the same time feel like I needed to go back. It was like, there's obviously something that's here for me. Um, and uh, yeah, so it was just kind of keep on keeping on seeing where it's going to lead. So yeah, going back home, oddly enough, has never been the, cause that didn't feel like there was any answers there either. Like every, I already knew what was there waiting for me. And I was like, well, that's not it. So yeah, I don't know why I would go there. Yeah. yeah it sounds like you knew the answers were in yourself, but you needed the time and some habits to get to the answers within yourself. And it sounds like these morning pages or journaling really helped. I, I'm curious about what morning pages means. Oh, it's a, it's a fairly no, well-known practice within the writing world. Basically, every morning you write three pages, uh, long hand, like handwritten. Um, and the idea is to try to write them without stopping. And what it's supposed to do is release 
yourself from self-editing and to just allow free flow thinking. Uh, so for creative writers, especially people who have writer's block, it's a great way to just brain dump and just get things out of your head. And to get into that practice, then when you are sitting down to write your actual thing is that you've already removed some barriers or you might have little tidbits of things that you wrote in your morning pages. But the idea is that there's no, they're not supposed to be anything other than what's in your, your head. So um, as I'd already journaled in the past, um, although not maybe quite as habitually, you know, when I discovered morning pages, um, that was, you know, that whole lack of self-editing and just trying to write freely. Um, it's interesting because you find yourself sometimes stopping on the page when you're about to write something and then you're like hesitating and then you're like, okay, why didn't I want to write that down? Why didn't I want to write that thought? You know, um, because, and then yourself becomes real on that. And that's, you know, we, we, we don't want to say the words I'm afraid or I'm sad or I'm ashamed. Um, and when you're in that writing mode and you, you hesitate, it's very revealing about the parts of yourself that um, maybe you need to lean into even a little bit more. <laughs> so uh, yeah, it's very, it's a, yeah, it's not for everybody, but it, it works for me. So. I really love that. And it sounds like it takes a lot of self-awareness as well. And I'm just wondering about self-awareness. Like, have you learned a lot living in a foreign country? And obviously it's, you know, obviously you've had a lot of experiences. You hated it. You were, you know, you were grieving, you were changing your whole entire life. Um, but were you, and I think you were self-aware enough at the time to know you needed to make a change, but has your self-awareness grown by going through this big, massive change in your life? Oh yeah. Um, in ways I, I wouldn't have expected. So I think one of the biggest, when I'm, and I, I don't know how to say this without sounding jerky, but I didn't realize I was white until mm. I moved abroad. Interesting. Uh, so I grew up in Canada, multicultural. I grew up in poor neighborhoods where white was not the majority. So racial differences were not um, an issue for me because um, I just grew up with people around me. And so that was never a thing. You either are a good person or you're a jerk, right? But so I didn't really ever think about the whole white privilege thing and stuff. And, and you know, you move to, or even white, like white male privilege even, and, you know, being, uh, so I, I, I live and work in Cambodia, but I've also had the opportunity over the last six years to, to work a year in Africa and Zambia, as well as multiple different Asian countries, um, some work in Uganda, the Philippines, and, you know, things like that. And it is, it, it was so, it's been so humbling and, and, and oftentimes embarrassing, um, the white privilege and white male privilege that exists when we've worked with local teams and, you know, whether it's going into certain buildings or being dressed a certain way where I am given permission to be something that other people are not. And so that was a whole new level of self-awareness that I was not um, even, it wasn't even on my radar. And even, even it's opened eyes to like, you know, the plight of women as well. Like I've worked with, I'm always surrounded by really amazing women. And, and I think just this aspect of, it's just opened my eyes to like, this, the privilege that like people pay attention because I'm a white male in a, in a room full of, or they expect me to be the leader in, in a lot of sort of more of these, these, these cultures. And, and it was, yeah, like I said, humbling and sometimes really embarrassing. <laughs> so, um, yeah. Mm, I appreciate your candor on that. How has that changed your approach to leadership or your approach when working with people in Cambodia and 
other countries that you've been to, like, you know, Uganda and other African countries? Um, I think it's been more, it's about being more purposeful than about making sure others vo- other voices are heard. If you happen to be in a position of power, whether that's given, provided, or assumed, I think then it's your job to make sure that you are empowering other people. So whether that's in a room and, and realizing, oh, that, you know, that person hasn't spoken up is by saying, well, what do you think about this? And, and making sure you're passing the microphone, as it were, to, to other people um, or shifting the, the focus to the areas that allow or facilitate more egalitarian approaches. Yeah, it's definitely a complex issue. And um, I like that approach where you, you do what you can in your part of the world and in your part of your job, right? And, and hopefully that trickles down and hopefully you can be a good mentor and a good model for people around you so that they feel that they can also have a voice and, or if they're in your position or a similar position to you, they can also lead by example and give people a voice too. So that's really interesting. What else did you learn about yourself in, in Cambodia and in, in your travels? Because you had said you didn't really travel before you moved to Cambodia. So, you know, what has travel taught you? Oh, yeah, it's interesting. So I have a twin sister and in our lives, you know, she was always the one who imagined that she would be the traveler and she'd, she'd done a year abroad in school and, and, you know, and things like that. And it was just never on my list of things to do. And, and then I was sort of forced into it with these work situations. And, you know, I think you just, the more you see of the world, the more, the smaller that you feel. And, and I've kind of loved that about myself. Like, it's just like, I, I like that feeling now of feeling small maybe like is too strong of a word, but it's just, you know, every time I go, I've gone to a new country, it's like you see something brand new that you've never seen before. And I used to think I was an open-minded person. And then you get to certain places and you are like, what, how, you know, I'll give you, I, I was working on a project a lot, a year, two years ago. And it was for a, a complimentary feeding toolkit that we were doing for Myanmar. Um, so for, for mothers in Myanmar, and, um, you know, a lot of those young mothers struggle to teach their baby how to eat solid foods, you know, how, to, how do you wean them from breastfeeding into getting to solid foods. And one of the challenges is that they've never really been taught how to mash foods to get to the right texture for the right baby's age. Right? And so we were doing uh, some prototyping around, you know, different tools and things like that that could help them do this. And one of the tools we just kind of threw in there as an idea was like, oh, we could, well, we could add a fork, you know, they could mash up the avocados and whatever and stuff like that. And not one of the women that we worked with, we'd interviewed like, I don't know, 30 or 50 women. Not one of them had ever used a fork to mash food before. And it was the most mind, like we were all like, what? What do you, what do you, what do you mean? What do you, of course you mash food with a fork, but they'd never done that. I mean, they, they used spoons to mash things and, you know, they used fork to, to spear things. And it was just one of those like moments where you're like, not everybody thinks the way that you do. <laughs> and that, that's, just when you think you've got a handle of that and you see another culture and they do something completely different and you're like, well, that's not wrong. That's just different. And I think that's probably the biggest thing that I've learned about myself is I used to think very binary around this is right or wrong and it's not right or wrong. And it's when you, when you, when you take away right or wrong and you just think it's just different, 
it can totally change the way you think about everything from politics to, to food practices to, you know, whatever. So I think that's been a big thing is just realizing my own binary thinking about things and just saying it's not right or wrong, it's just different. And how do you appreciate and recognize differences? It goes back to what you were saying before, giving people a voice and asking people questions and really listening, right? And not just going in and saying, well, I'm, I have the power in the room, so I'm going to just assume that what I say is right, right? And yeah. so that's really interesting. Yeah, travel really does that, right? It just opens up your eyes to how different people live and, um, you know, how blessed we really are. So, yeah. Also, how much, how much the same people are. Right. I mean, that's the other thing, too, is like everywhere you go, it's like people are the same. They're the same, same, but different. You know, they all have families. They're all trying to make do with what they have. They all have their vices. They all have, you know, things they know they should do and things they want to do. And, you know, um, they all laugh. They all cry. Some people have better music than other people. <laughs> have great music. <laughs> so, um, yeah. Yeah. Very interesting. Do you think at the end of the day, everyone's looking for happiness? And what, what does that mean to you? Because you had said you weren't happy you know, when you're in Canada and before you made this move, what, what does that mean? Like, just tell me a little bit more about your thoughts around happiness. Oh, that's a good question. Yes. I do think people are looking for happiness. I don't think everybody knows what that means to them. So I guess it was about six years ago, maybe seven years ago. My fiance at the time had brought home a couple of books and um, one of them was called the desire map. And I don't know, it was a purple cover, it looked very feminine. And I was like, I didn't really give it any thought. And then one day I just sort of picked it up and flipped through it and didn't really give it much thought. And then like I was kind of reading a couple of lines and she used profanity, which I enjoyed in it. And, um, you know, and the Desire Map book was, uh, was a very interesting, so it's a bit of a workbook. And what it does is it sort of challenges you to think about your beliefs around certain areas of your life. So whether it's community, whether it's relationships, whether it's your job, challenge yourself to think, are these things that I still believe in, um, that I actually believe, or have they been instilled in me? But one of the key things that's really changed my life, and especially around the notion of happiness uh, that I really like, is, is she discusses uh, core desired feelings. And a lot of the premise of, of the book is about having the life that you want means feeling the way that you want most of the time. And so there's like an exercise to go through, like, what are your core desired feelings? How do you want to feel most of the time? And, and what are the words that, you know, you can put to those? Because words are very powerful. And when each of us hear a certain word, we can feel a certain way. So for example, like the word sunny, if I say the word sunny to you, you might feel like, oh, it's bright out. When I hear the word sunny, I feel like a cup of coffee in the early morning when nobody's up and it's quiet and calm and I'm enjoying the moment and I feel at rest. When I hear the word sunny, that it brings on that sort of feeling for me. So when I think I was like, I wanna feel sunny more often. So then part of the book is like, okay, so what are the things that you do that make you feel that way, right? So for me, it is getting up early in the morning and having coffee, <laughs> but it also means, you know, having a good conversation with somebody. Um, another word that, that sort of was inspiring, and it doesn't have to be major things, like one word that I really liked was athletic. I really like to feel athletic. Now that might mean, oh, I like to play sports and I want to go to the gym and all that thing, which means as well, but there's also simple things. It's like, I feel more athletic when I wear running shoes. 
I just wear my gym shoes. I already feel like I have a spring in my step. I feel like I'm on the, you know, and so I can feel more of the way that I want to feel just by changing the shoes that I wear. Right. So, so that book for me was really powerful because every year since then I reevaluate, how do I want to feel? And then I assign, what are the things that I'm going to do to feel this way more often? And that helps me feel happier. That's so great. That's Danielle Laporte is the desire map, correct? Yes. Yeah. She's fantastic. You're very disciplined and intentional, Michael, you have this practice of evaluating these feelings every year. How do you do that? <laughs> um, you know, this is, I feel like such a nerd. Like, <laughs> like, I love um, it. Um, I do a year in review. So every year what I do, I don't do re- New Year's resolutions, but because I keep a journal, I do a year in review. I look at my year and I was like, well, what were the low points? What were the high points? Um, you know, that because I think because that first time that that reevaluation process for me was so powerful to realize the things that I believed for so long weren't true anymore. Right. And I, I just never wanted to get to that place again, where it was like, I have to unearth my entire life, um, you know, and suddenly, you know, change my whole world and go through this devastating process, you know, to be, to be happy. And so now it's become more of like that, that sort of regular health check. It's like, where are we this year? You know, is the, are these still the things I want to feel? Are these still important to me? What's changed? Recognizing the, 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 you know, the people, you know, every year, it seems like there's four or five people that were key in my year. I'm like, oh, wow. You know, this person was really, you know, there a lot, or I spent a lot of time with them where I was very grateful for their, their insights. Or sometimes it was just a shitty year. And it was like, being able to just sit back and like acknowledge that and say, okay, well, what, what went wrong or why? And, and um, you know, sometimes it's your own, I was lazy and okay, I was lazy or, you know, I just had too many things on the go and I didn't have time to be as consistent in my workouts as I wanted to be. Right. So it's, it's a moment to just sort of reflect on the goods, the bads, just as objectively as possible. And then just reevaluate, like, you know, am I, am I still doing what I want to do? And I guess it's kind of like when companies do an annual, you know, their annual report. It's kind of like the annual report for your life every year. Um, I like that. I think uh, that's such great advice and it's such a great perspective, like an annual review of your life. I'm going to steal that. Do you (laughs) plan forward as well? Like, do you decide, okay, what am I going to change this year? And do you set goals and how does that work? So actually usually set aside a couple of days near the end of the year, sometimes it's December where I can either go somewhere and be deliberate about going through it. And sometimes I break it up over two days. Like, I don't want to, you know, yeah, I guess, yeah, like an annual, uh, you know, retreat, if you will. Mm -hmm. The first stage is usually just absorbing, reading through things, reflecting, you know, um, and then there's the reevaluation stage. And I do, I actually have a, I don't know if you can see on the back wall there, but I have a just do it list. So what I end up doing is I, I put, the category, I create categories in my life and my world because that's because I'm that kind of thinker. Not everybody is, but that helps me. And so I have like, what are my career goals this year? What are my financial goals? What are my fitness goals? What are my family and, and friends goals? And, um, and you know, I, I, maybe it sounds like, I don't know, maybe too clinical for some people. But the thing is, is that things don't happen. You have to make them happen. And when I put them down, and this is, I mean, people will tell you this, like, like you mentioned earlier, like you write down a goal and suddenly you've committed to it and it's different. And so this is my year goal list. And it's like, it's there every day, remind it. And it's like, am I going to achieve everything on that list? No, but you know, I can, I can at least have things to shoot for and aim for. And sometimes there's simple things 
Um, you know, and sometimes they're big things. Sometimes it's just a reminder to make sure that I at least call my mom <laughs> at least right. once a month. Yeah, at least once a month, Michael. At least once a month. (laughs) Or like message, message regularly. Like it can be, it's just intentional actions that become, um, you know, that are not things that I have to to try to want to do because I did the, uh, you know, I I started at a place where these are things that are important to me and that I want to do. And and I think for some people who, who, who are a bit more OCD and, and can get down on themselves, if they don't achieve certain goals, it might not work for them, but it at least gives me a starting place. Um, you know, so, because otherwise, you know, months can go by and it's like, oh, right. You said you were going to do bike rides this year. You're going to bike ride more. It's like, well, what does bike ride more mean? Does that mean you're going to do two more bike rides this year? Or are you going to do 10 more? Is that once a week or once a month? You know? So I think quantifying, making things more specific just makes it easier for people to, you know, to say, okay, I can, I can do five. That's achievable. 20 seems like too much, but I could do five. Yeah. Again, it goes back to that self-awareness, like what's going to work for you, but also being deliberate. And I like that you use that word deliberate and intentional and looking at things because you're right. Days and weeks can go by and all of a sudden we're like, oh, we haven't called our mom. Right. Mm -hmm. So it sounds simple, but sometimes those simple things we do need to be reminded about. And it also reminds you like what is important to you. Mm -hmm. It connects you back to your values and, and what's important in your life. So what do you do when you don't reach goals? Like, do you, you know, you said some people would be really down on themselves. Like, how do you navigate those feelings of regret or those feelings of, I wonder why I didn't do that? You know, do you ever beat yourself up and how do you stop that process? Oh, yeah. Um, hmm. It's a good question. Um, like last year when I was, uh, when I was looking at the things I wanted to do last year, like I, I really noticed that my my health and fitness just weren't, you know, what I wanted them to be. Like, I think with COVID and, you know, like my gym schedule is off and work, doing workouts at home can be hard. And, you know, um, and then I went back home and, and then when you're, I'm there, when I'm in Canada, like it's hard to have a routine and stuff like that. And, you know, um, and it can be very frustrating because it's, I know what I need to do. It's just like, well, why didn't I do it? And, you know, and I think when, looking at why didn't I do it? It's like, well, it was, it was hard to be consistent. Um, you know, psychologically, lots of different things going on with the whole COVID thing and being isolated. And so, and also just, I had a lot of other things going on as well. And, and so I think recognizing your own limitations um, and sometimes, you know, even though you have all these goals at any given time, one is going to be more important than the other. Right. And so it's, it's just, I think there's a level of self-acceptance and forgiveness. Now, that mm. being said, I think it's also important to kick your own ass sometimes. Mm. Right? Um, and, you know, not to be too forgiving, especially if you want to achieve something. Like, um, so this year for me, like, I've been more intentional about, you know, my fitness being consistent. It's not about like losing a particular amount of weight or, you know, being able to deadlift 300 pounds or anything like that, but just consistency. That's the goal this year is just to try to be consistent. And that sort of takes a little bit more of a burden off of trying to achieve something bigger or bolder. Just, just try to be habitual about it. Um, I think, I mean, also it helps. I, I do have a support system. I have people that I talk to. I have a mm-hmm. sister that I'm very, very close with. So when I do struggle with things, um, you know, beyond like journaling, like the morning pages is that, um, yeah, I mean, I ask for help. <laughs> I think that's like, I'm stuck. I don't know, or I'm, I'm just feeling down today. I'm feeling lonely or I'm feeling kind of depressed and, you know, uh, so having people around me that are, 
you know, willing to talk and, and ask, you know, good questions or just know what I need. Sometimes people, you know, sometimes I don't need help solving a problem. I just need, you know, comfort or I need presence. It's just, I just need to be around somebody right now. And uh, so I think I'm fortunate to have, yeah, a support system. Yeah. Those connections are so important, especially now, like you mentioned COVID and isolation and has that impacted how you motivate yourself as well? Because obviously the world was in chaos for a while and you know, how have things changed for you in that regard? You know, <laughs> the COVID timing was interesting. So uh, I've been working in Cambodia for, um, I've been here for six years, but I've been at the same company for, for five as of last year. And I actually gave in my notice in January last year. Um, so I already knew I was leaving before COVID kind of hit. Now, because I was on the, the senior management team, I, I gave them about three months notice so that we could really transition and, you know, hire, you know, replacements and all that stuff. And then, and then COVID hit sort of in the middle of all that. But because I already had the mindset that I was leaving, and when you're, I was leaving to just be a consultant and work on my master's. So I was already kind of prepared for some level of uncertainty. It wasn't like it hit me out of nowhere. And so COVID just kind of happened and it, you know, it didn't really affect too much of my plans. Um, because I was already sort of looking at, you know, potentially consulting work that would be overseas or, or remote. So I've been very fortunate, actually, it, it's, it hasn't really affected my work too much. Um, actually, at all, I probably even, it's probably helped it, <laughs> to be honest. But that being said, one of the things that is hard is the, and it, true of any, I guess, suppose entrepreneur working by themselves is the team, like you just miss the, the human connection. And, you know, sometimes I'm so busy, with all the various things going on that I don't realize that maybe I'm a little bit lonely um, mm. and so when things slow down um, that it's like, Oh, okay. You know, it's kind of sucks. There's nobody around right, right now. Um, but uh, I have some good friends here and uh, I can always call home, call my mom. One of the quotes on your LinkedIn profile, Michael, you say, I believe it's possible to do good for the world and make a profit. I'm curious about that quote and what that means to you. Oh, uh, yeah, that's thank you for asking about that. So for the last five or so years with the company I was at here, we did a lot of work with international development and international NGOs, um, you know, and whether it's like projects funded by the World Bank or, or things like that, or USAID. And, you know, the world is filled with good intentions, um, especially in this side of the world and in developing countries. You'll have all sorts of different donor organizations or you have social enterprises, you know, that just want to do good and have impact. And that's great, except for in a lot of cases, it's just not sustainable, mm. right? And what, what happens, what I've seen a lot of is just like these different donors and NGOs or even social enterprises, they just have an agenda that isn't necessarily what people need or really want. You know, it's like an outside view coming in, um, you know, and uh, social enterprises maybe do a little bit better about this idea of like creating sustainability, but they also don't have a business mindset in a lot of the cases that I've seen where it's like, you know, businesses succeed because they're driven by profit generally, right? Not because people are greedy, because that's how it works, right? To scale up, you need to have capital and you need to have cash flow and you need to be able to reinvest in other resources or you need to be able to like, you know, <clears throat> expand. And so there's just not a lot of these organizations that have that mindset. And, you know, when I, when I look around, it's like, you know, it seems like there's two mentalities. It's like, you're either doing business for profit and that's kind of like shrouded in this idea of greed or, or, you know, something's wrong with that picture to be profit driven. 
right? Or you're a social enterprise and you're all about impact and profit doesn't matter or shouldn't matter. And it's a dirty word. And I just don't think that's the case. I think we, the world going forward needs to create products and services that people want, that they desire, that they need, that are also good for the world, right? I mean, there's no reason they can't coexist. And so, but just continually, there's this, this binary thinking. And I was like, no, I think, you know, and I, as you know, I'm working on with a social enterprise right now, we did some Kickstarter work and they create, we create knitted toys then, you know, help employ Cambodian women here. That gives them a flexible income. They can work as much or as little as they want, but the, the goal is to be a for-profit social enterprise so that the more profit, the more profitable the business is, the more we can hire more people, right? So it's, it, it can be cyclical and we can still create products that, that people want, right? And as soon as you're a profitable company, you get to choose what you do with those profits. So if you are a purpose-driven company and your core values are around impact, right? Well, now if you have, you know, $100,000 profit, net profit at the end of the year, you can decide, hey, you know what? We're going we're gonna to put this into a school program or we're going to create a new thing over here or we're going to donate it, right? You can do a lot more if you have the financial resources to do it. So I think that thinking really has to become less binary, so... As you can say, obviously a passionate area for me. Wow. I love it. I can totally hear the passion. I love that you, how you explain that. And it's true. A lot of people think profit's a dirty word and it's not, it, it is how you use it, right? It's not, it's not what you do. It's how you do it. And, and you can still impact. And I think a lot of us want to make an impact in the, on the world. And I think that's great, but you're right. You can't do that without having some level of profitability so you can give back. And I love the fact that you're, you're helping Cambodian women and your Kickstarter campaign looked fantastic and so cute. The toys are adorable. <laughs> are you going to be continuing with that? Yeah. Yep. Um, yeah. I'm a part uh, equity uh, shareholder in the company now. Uh, it's part of how I'm helping them because cash flow is obviously, you know, it's still kind of an up and coming. The base organization has been around for a while, but um but yeah, it's actually been a really great experience for me in many ways. Um, one, because social enterprise, um, the, the for-profit, but also because they've been locally based for a long time and now I'm helping them scale. And that was something in my own business that I never got to do. I never figured out how to do that. And I have a lot more tools now to understand how to scale and how to build a company, the operational components of a company that are scalable. We're about to start e-commerce sales in the US and Canada. Um, and, and also too, it's a manufacturing uh, business, which previously I've worked mostly with service-based companies. So, uh, the different challenges there are, are numerous and, and fun, um, uh, around, and, and then on top of that, it's like, Hey, man, it's a good cause, right? So, mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. saying all those pieces have been very rewarding. Michael, this podcast is called sparking action. And I'm just wondering what advice you would give to people to help them create a spark of action in their own life. Uh, can I tell a little story? Absolutely. Um, so I was really close with my grandmother. And for a long time, like she lived in a little mountain town in British Columbia. And for a long part of my, my adult life, I always imagined there would be a time um, that I would go and spend a couple of weeks or a couple of months with her in the mountain town. She was, she was kind of lonely, but we got along really good. And we were both artists. So, um, and I, I had this picture perfect image in my mind about what that was going to be like. And it was going to be great. And we were just going to have some time together, really connect. And, you know, she was going to tell me all the things she never told my mom and all those things. And, um, and uh, a few years ago, she died. Um, and that never happened. Um, and, and that never will happen. 
no matter how clear it was in my mind that this was going to happen. And I think when that happened, when she died and I realized that that perfect little image that I had was never going to happen, it really sort of sparked me because it made me feel like things aren't going to happen unless I make them happen. They're not just going to happen someday, right? It really means that I have to make that phone call. I have to go to that place. I have to do that thing. It's not just going to happen because I thought about it, even if, I, even if it was crystal clear. So I think, I think for people, if you have something in your mind that you think and you want to really happen, you have to do it. I think just do it is it's, and it sounds so, so like simple. I'll just do it. It's like, but really think about it. It's like, maybe you don't want it to happen. Maybe you've just imagined it's going to happen. Right. But you have to make it happen. You are the only one who can make that happen. And if you don't, it won't. So I think that was, that was definitely a lesson for me. And um, I actually got a tattoo of a clock on my, on my arm um, after that, uh, that says you've only got so much time. Um, you know, or my grandma, she only had so much time. And it's like, I missed that window. And so when I have those vivid pictures of things now that I want to happen, I do that check. I was like, do I want this to happen? Okay, well, make it happen then. Uh, or it won't. Wow, that gave me goosebumps. And that is such amazing and insightful advice, Michael. And thank you so much. And that's probably a really fitting way to end our interview right now and our conversation. I just want to thank you so much for coming on, sharing your wisdom and your learnings and your thoughts and your ideas. And most of all, you know, your advice on just doing it. If you really want to do something, then go do it because you are right. Time is not always our friend and we don't know what's around the corner. I think we've all learned that in the past year, um, especially. I think it's put a fine point on plans and connections and meeting up with people. And so I think your advice is very timely and very insightful and just very impactful. So thank you so much, Michael. Well, thanks for, I'm glad it was helpful. And yeah, it was great to chat with you, Jira. Of course. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed the conversation today. If you did, please share with someone who you think might enjoy hearing it. And if you have an idea for a future guest on Sparking Action, please connect with me. Also, I'd love to hear your feedback, comments, and suggestions for the podcast. I look forward to connecting.